Well, welcome back, everybody, to another fun and exciting edition of the Rolex Whiskey Passion Project. And today I am super excited to have the lovely Allison Park, who actually was around kind of the beginning of my journey as Rolex Whiskey back in the day in Brooklyn for Eric's Scotch and Time tasting event. Al, you remember that one? Oh my God. That's where I first met you, Jenna. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> like everyone, Scotch, rest in peace. I mean, everyone. Yeah. I mean, everybody was there, but that was like the beginning. I mean, I think I rolled into town with like 15,000 followers on Rolex Whiskey at that point. And, you know, that was one of the first like unique shows where, I mean, Eric had us in like a a room in Brooklyn somewhere and every brand had time to like present themselves in front of everybody in the room. Um, and it was just, it was what, maybe 40 of us in the whole place. And it was like, it was a super cool intimate event, but that's when I first met you that's... and you, you would, I mean, your journey was how deep, how deep was brand whiskey at that point? I don't, I don't even remember what year it is. I... It's probably five years ago. Okay, so we were we were we were what I will say the halfway point to our to our next mountain peak. Okay, so this yeah. is the lovely Allison. You know, you got that by that point. Al, do you want to um, say hi to everybody and kind of? I know I've I've introduced you. If you want to, if I missed anything, you can you can say anything. If not, we can jump right in. But I'd <laughs> love you to say hi. You know, and and we can go from there. Thanks. Yeah, I don't think you missed any. I think I think we'll figure it out along the journey. Yeah, it's pretty love it. So so tell me something. Why whiskey? Where where did the whiskey like you know, we get to try a lot of spirits and beverages and like you gravitated towards whiskey and what was your first experience? Like where you're like, Oh, whiskey's kind of different and cool. No, I wasn't I wasn't that cool to know that it was it would be cool. I was a ballerina before I started in the whiskey business. So from nine years old to 23, I was a professional ballerina. I had my blinders on. I did some off, off Broadway, things like that. When I got my first nine to five salaried job, which as a ballerina, that is incredibly rare. <laughs> the first, you know, first week I was at work, someone said, oh, do you want to join me for happy hour? And I thought, well, I'm happy and I've got an hour. Sure. Like, I had no idea what I was saying yes to. And just for context in, like, pop culture, this was the early 2000s, like 2000-something, three, four, around there, um, in New York City. Maybe I was 21. It was in in New York City. So it was pop, like, pop culture-wise, it was the era of Sex in the City when that show had just come out. So we go to a... So it's cocktails. It's cocktails, really. Like, it's... it's it's cosmopolitan. That's it. It yeah. It wasn't even cocktails. It was just the cosmo, right? Like the cranberry, the vodka, the pink thing in the martini glass. Yeah. And my, I was like, well, what do we do here? And he was like, well, we drink. And I was like, what do we drink? And he goes, Cosmos. <laughs> so <laughs> you can't see me because this is a podcast. But Gavin, you know me. If if you yeah. tie my hands around my back, I'm unable to speak. Right, <laughs> the arms need to move for me to be able to speak. And I had this stupid pink 
drink in a stupid martini glass, which I finally like have later in life been able to figure out how on earth to hold and like drink properly from. But as a, you know, 21 year old, completely inexperienced with alcohol, my first story I told has the drink fly across the room. Right. And I was like, shit, I can't afford yours or my dry cleaning. So that's not that's not my jam. So I literally went to the bar and this is a horrible way to say I came into whiskey, but I came into whiskey through the glassware. Wow. Yeah. Because I was like, well, what comes in that glass? Like, I liked the rocks vessel. And uh, and the guy was like, whiskey. And I was like, well, what do you do with whiskey? He's like, I can make you a Manhattan. And I can't remember specifically the order if I had whiskey neat first and then a Manhattan or a Manhattan and then whiskey neat. But somehow I found myself with whiskey neat in the rocks glass. And I... I loved the smell. I loved the taste. And I also loved holding that glass, right? There's something that feels very confident and powerful and uh, and accessible holding that glass of scotch, bourbon, rye, blends. I don't care what's in the glass as long as it's a whiskey. I'm a, I'm a happy person. So that was kind of like my first real introduction. I happened to have like um, a Yamazaki 18 was like one of the first whiskeys I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody wanted it. You were like a rarity, right? You're talking about early 2000s. They're like a Yamazaki 18. What do you mean? You don't want a scotch or a bourbon? You're right. You're, like, <laughs> You're right. I was like, what's that dusty bottle? And he was like, yeah, I guess that's whiskey. And I was like, okay. You know, <laughs> freaking loved it. It was so delicious. So then, so it really started my journey, right? Because I was like, well, now I want to under, I want to nerd out. Whiskey, ballerinas are nerds. Whiskey people are nerds. I was like, if I'm going to drink something, I want to understand what I'm drinking. I want to know what I'm putting into my body. And then when I started to learn about it, I just fell in love with the stories and how long it takes to make a whiskey. You know, you go to a winery and they're like nine months in oak and you go to a whiskey distillery and they're like 10 years in oak. And you're like that one. I want that guy. <laughs> I mean, that's where I geek out on just Mother Nature and different climates. You know, yes. like, you know, you drink something from Scotland where it's always fucking cold and it tastes one way after 30 years. And you drink like a six year old Indian whiskey and you're like, holy shit. How do they do that? You're like, well, it's hot as Africa. So the thing, it's, you know, hot as India. <laughs> the barrel's expanded the whole time pretty much. It doesn't really get the contrast. Oh, okay. That's what the liquid does. Yes. It's it's actually really funny. You just said that. I was, at least at the time of that we're recording this, I don't know what it'll, it'll publish, but um, oh, last week I was in Africa. I was in Kenya in Nairobi. I was drinking Paul John that was brought to me from India by a friend there. <laughs> So I can say which John, an Indian whiskey in Africa holds up. It's appropriate. <laughs> oh, 100%. I mean, I think that, you know, you got this romance with what the whiskey does and there's just the geeky level. And then you got, a, you know, you've got proofs and ABVs and cuts and fucking different woods. And like you could go on for millions of years. So now you're like, OK, so now you're still the ballerina. You got the nine to five. You went to happy hour. You had a little whiskey. Now, because <laughs> you really, you really took that and ran with it. <laughs> yeah, it's one thing you say you like it. You're a fan. It's an entirely other thing to start a whiskey company in a country you don't inhabit and with a language you don't know. Um, exactly. <laughs> Very sex in the city. Very more like the other one. What's her What's her name? Emily in Paris. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was the original. You were the original. 
Okay, so go. <laughs> so, so at that time, right? And again, I mean, my God, my my nine to five job. I I was like, I was also like cleaning apartments in New York. I was a party motivator at bar and bar mitzvahs. Like I freaking hustled to afford rent and just to like live and. And then I also, I don't know why or where I got this idea. I think just because I was like used to being poor as a teenager, I just really like obsessed over my savings account. Like if I made $500, I would challenge myself to see if I could put 300 in my savings account, right? So I was like, and like ballerinas, we just don't make money. So my first salary, I think I was making, you know, $22,000 a year. And I thought, Jack Pot, like I... I'm a multimillionaire, basically. Like, I'm really good. <laughs> and I was I worked at a juice bar, by the way, in that same period of line of, oh of time, the tw- early twenties, and I was like, oh my god, I get to eat and drink, and they pay me like eighteen thousand a year. This is fucking heaven. <laughs> you know? That's expensive. <laughs> I was like, whoa. Okay, so so now you're like, okay. So I've got my little nine to five. I'm very happy. I'm proud of myself. I get to start traveling. You know, this is like where I fell in love with business travel, traveling all over the U.S. and um, going on these happy hours, realizing the impact of a business dinner, realizing the power of knowing how to order a good glass of wine and a good glass of night, like for your nightcap or your like happy hour. So for me, it was I always defaulted to whiskey. So I thought I'm going to learn those two things, right? So the way to learn about wine in like the late 90s, early 2000s in New York was just go to any wine store. And it was very much a wine era in this country. So everyone, they weren't just doing the like one importer standing there on a Friday night. They were doing like sit down wine tastings, showing you the difference of a plastic cup to a Riedel glass to a regular wine glass with like five different wine expressions in a line like like these wine stores at least the ones that i was able to go to in new york like took their wine tasting so seriously and for the most part they were free or like buy a bottle and you know you kind of get this experience for free so i onboarded into the manufacturing of alcohol through these really in-depth wine tastings and that was important for my journey because everyone in wine talks about terroir right t-e-r-r-o-i-r It's the art of having a sense of place in the smell and taste. And then when I would grab my whiskey books, because people weren't doing whiskey tastings back then, I would just kind of read about all these things. I thought, this is super weird that no one's talking about terroir whiskey. And why why not, right? Like if it's still, instead of like wine is grapes, ferment, age bottle optional on the age and whiskey's grain mm-hmm. for distill age bottles like there should be some place some sense of provenance so i thought i'm really crushing it <laughs> my first nine to five job i know i should start my own company because clearly i'm good at business <laughs> and you know whiskey <laughs> and and i was learning i was learning whiskey yeah so I thought, you know, let me start. And I, and at that point, I was married to my first husband, and and um, that was helpful, right? Like especially in that entrepreneurial journey, because it wasn't just my salary now paying for rent. Um, yeah. 
Although we had like a four, we had a fifth floor walk-up apartment that was 370 square feet of space. So we were not living in luxury either. But you know, we would like save all of our miles and we flew to India. We would like go to Japan. We were going to some really interesting places. All the while, I was always going to wineries. I was always going to distilleries. And I just started very quickly because not many people, again, in the in the world, especially like young white women from America, were excited about whiskey. So when I started meeting the whiskey people, they were going, well, you're American. And, and I was saying, oh, maybe I want to put together, like start an import-export company and start importing single malt whiskeys from around the world that are focused on terroir. Okay. 2023, totally possible. 2004, no, like no, no one was making whiskey that way, right? Yeah, 2023, it's those ones that come in the blue bottle. I forget what their names are. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that would be that. <laughs> like the baby uh, okay. front or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I was like, oh, okay, well, I haven't like found anything to import yet. And then all these guys, they were so, they were so nice to me, Gavin. Like they were the nicest. Those early people that I met in whiskey and then like just continued for the rest of my career have been so generous and kind and like easy and approachable. And they would be like, hey, Allison, you're an American. You know whiskey people internationally, so you must know bourbon producers. We want to import American craft distilleries. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. So now this is like 2005, 2006, right? Like I'd been networking my face off. I'd been traveling like every, I used every travel opportunity to like meet people. I mean, it was a little early. Yeah, 2005. So I start cold calling distilleries. Um, Which there aren't that many of for American whiskey at that point, right? I mean, like. Right. Correct. Yeah. yeah okay. Like the first like 12 DSP, like distillers permits in America. And I was like, yeah. hello, <laughs> like Clear Creek Distillery up in like Washington State and a bunch of the, and I was like, "Hey, my name's Allison. I'm, I'm uh, exporting American craft whiskeys. I'm pulling a container together. I don't know what I'm talking about, and um, and I've got all these. I do like, I, like this part was true. I had interest in Japan and in Norway and in Sweden and in France and like some of these other places that I had visited, and uh, and I was like, "Are you interested in giving me the rights to your whiskey for a year? And like, let's just see if I can help your business." And everyone was like, "What? Okay." <laughs> so. Thank goodness somebody's buying it. They're thinking, right. we can't figure out anything. Okay. I mean, right. this is a common story in that era. It's even worse in the pre-2000s where, like, you know, Julian and Marcy are like, uh, nobody wants this stuff. What do we do? <laughs> Japan. You are 100% right. Yeah, Julian Pat from Van Winkle. He, um, and, like, and then also on, like, on the international stage, right, 2000 Rangers. Seven, eight, nine in that era, the Scotch industry got really mad at India because there were a handful of producers there making what was called Indian whiskey. I put that in quotes, and it was a a sugar cane or a molasses based distillate, so basically rum. Um, and they, and in India, they weren't selling it internationally, but they were selling such mega volume, calling it Indian whiskey. And so the Scotch industry was like, hey poo-poo, you can't do that. Whiskey has to be grain-based. I don't know. I don't remember which courts. I feel like they went to court somewhere, but regardless, it came out that, okay, if you put whiskey somewhere on a label, like it's got to be grain-based. So it was like 
then that um, that the Indian distilleries or some of them started to go, cool, well, we'll show you. We can also make whiskey. And they started to like change their stills over. And then in 1999, Makmira in Sweden broke ground. So they were the first whiskey distillery in Sweden. Um, so there was like, and then obviously like the Japanese whiskeys, um, you know, it started in 1945. So there was like this really interesting, like tiny, tiny, tiny little like group of international people. And a couple of us were networking together and I didn't consider myself part of that group yet, but I was just excited about them. And then some guys also in, um, New Zealand, right? Like the New Zealand whiskey scene was kind of popping a little bit. So, and I'm a Francophile. So I saw a lot of people in France started to really consume Japanese whiskey. And that's when I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah that was like 2000. That was a huge point. Yeah. I mean, I remember going to France and being like, wait, they're not drinking fucking cosmopolitans here. You're right. Like they're, you know, they're drinking whiskey and wine and champagne. And like the, the, the ones who wanted to drink, I, I you know, gin was moving. Oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. gin was moving. Not as much as it moved in Spain, but yeah, you're totally no. right. Yeah. And like and then they were also bringing back like Sue's from their own culture. So they were like they were kind of getting into some interesting things. So I was like, you know, this is this is kind of cool. Like the French drinking Japanese whiskey made the Japanese go, well, wait a minute. Maybe we want our own whiskey back. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I was like thinking about this concept of terroir. So I basically was like, listen, if the the French are very like they have a lot of pride around made in France things. So if someone in France could make a hundred percent French whiskey, I bet the consumer group might start backing off of Japanese whiskey or at least do like a market share split and get excited about French whiskey. Additionally, what if I take the if I just copy that kind of like, I don't know if they meant to business model, but like where ja- Japan didn't really sell their whiskey to the Japanese because they couldn't, so they sold it to yeah. France. I thought, what if I could make French whiskey, sell it to America, get Americans all excited about it? Then the French will go, hey, wait a minute. We want our whiskey back. And then I could like go over and pop in that market. (laughs) So this became my master plan was basically to copy a couple of things, pull in the concept of terroir from from wine and like, let's make a really authentic, really beautiful, totally elegant, but approachable French single malt whiskey using 100% or 100% french ingredients um and you know i'm thinking like an american let's cut corners let's figure out how to get this done as fast as possible so i literally go to the handful of guys that would talk to me who were already making whiskey in france and i was like hey new idea gotta be hot totally gonna work you know <laughs> <laughs> i'm selling you guys i'm selling you like but no one's gonna buy it no, yeah no, but i'm selling well and you know the french like there's nothing more that they love than an american telling them what they should do uh the best <laughs> they love that accent <laughs> they basically shut the door in my face they're like go away little girl like go back to new york i don't know what you're talking about and i thought mm, i'll be back one day and then you know some a, a couple i don't know a few months later the guy who was running whiskey magazine france at the time um philippe Giget, he sends me an email and he's like and by the way, I know every time I talk about his emails, they always have a French accent because I, I read them the French accent. <laughs> it did write to me in English. And I was just in Cognac, France, the, the, checking out the Cognac producers, and uh, there's one who was doing something very strange. 
I, I don't know. He said he was making a whiskey, but uh, I don't I don't know it. Uh, I just thought, uh, peut-être, uh, perhaps you want to check it out. And he connects me with this guy. And I was like, okay. And I was 24 by the time this connection happened. The guy he connects me with is 28 years old, third generation cognac maker. And I fly to back to France by myself. This is like first generation iPhone where you're like switching out the SIM card at like my... Oh, tree. God, yeah. You know? Yep. I was still on Black. I was still on BlackBerry. I hadn't made the switch yet because BlackBerry was easier to switch that SIM card for me. See, I didn't know. I was terrible at technology. But I was just like, okay, you know, taking like a bent um, paper clip and jabbing it in this. Yeah, yeah. And I like, I was so dumb. I bought a a SIM card in London, thinking it would work in France because I like changed planes there. And I thought, oh, I'll just use my time wisely. So I get out of like the train, I, like the doors open up. There's no taxis. I think like a New Yorker, oh, I'm going to get out of any train anywhere. There's going to be a line of taxis. There's no taxis. So I just start to like start walking and my phone just goes, and it just dies. There's nothing left on the SIM card. I said, okay. So I'm walking around Cognac by myself with my luggage. I'm just like, I'll find something somewhere. And uh, finally found my hotel. The next day, this distiller picks me up. We go to his house is like chateau that he grew up in with the distillery in the back he's showing me the vineyard all organic he's showing me the barley fields that are heirloom and all organic and he and he gives me these whiskey samples from his barrels he's got a four-year-old three-year-old two-year-old one-year-old and i was like oh my god first of all the whiskey tasted like orange creamsicle and blueberries right like it was the weirdest thing i was like this is not whiskey and he's like no no i mean this is i was like tell me how you're making it and then i was like oh okay we're actually making whiskey <laughs> using all local ingredients local water local yeast da, 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 da. and he was aging it at that time exclusively in new french limousin which for your audience for comparison in today's pricing uh, or let's do back then pricing. So back then, a new American oak barrel could be like a good quality was like a two hundred dollars, right, for a distiller. Um, now you kind of get like on the crappy end of that for two hundred dollars, but like two hundred dollars, yes, American oak barrel. Back then, it was like twelve hundred euros, and the euro was so strong it was like almost twenty four hundred U.S. dollars, like two thousand four hundred. Yeah, it was like one point seven, one point eight. I remember going, going like fuck, you know, like drink in your room. Don't yes. drink when you go out. <laughs> oh my God. My first batch of Bren, I bought all the glass at like a 1.8 convert. It was so painful. Like, <laughs> it was the most expensive glass order I've ever placed in my life. <laughs> but yeah, anyhow, so so he was so, so these are like super expensive barrels. They give all of this um, creme, like if American Oak gives like burnt marshmallow, campfire, some wars, vanilla notes. Mm hmm. French that big oak. vanilla caramel note. Yeah, exactly. French oak gives more. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. So, American oak, uh, burnt marshmallow, caramel. French oak is going to be more butterscotch, but mostly more um, creme brulee, right? So, on that spectrum of vanilla, American to French oak, French oak bumps up that butterscotch, creme brulee, crusted, like, you know, break that sugar kind of top cream. So, this whiskey was like, orange peels raw like right like like green banana and apple come and peaches coming off the still with all those esters and then going into these like butterscotch creme brulee barrels it was really wild and so i just said to him i was like what are you doing like what are you doing with this whiskey and he was like what do you mean i was like well packaging or anything and he's like 
Mais non, mais non. We just, uh, we just drink it, Addison. We just drink the whiskey. <laughs> you need to stop that immediately. <laughs> so, basically, drew up this partnership. He wanted nothing to do with the business, except he just wanted to be the farmer and the distiller. After that, he didn't care about barrel management. Like, he wanted nothing to do with it. But he would do some of the work, like manual stuff for me. And he was like, if you want it, the whiskey's yours. So I'd, we signed this really awesome contract. He could stop doing what he was doing anytime. He just had to give me, you know, X number of years notice. Same on the reverse side. I got to own all the rights to his whiskey. And again, like I really only had two nine, two different nine to five jobs before I started my own company. I never went, went to business school. I didn't take a business class. So I'm sitting there and I'm trying to like really like that fake it till you make it. Like I'm a I'm, you know, I'm I'm good at business and I've got this contract and he's like looking at it and he just says, Okay, Alison, uh, I just have a une question, one, one, one question. I was like, sure, yeah. Uh what? And he goes, I just uh, to to get started, if you want me to sign it, I can sign it, it's okay, but I just need some money. And I was like, hmm. Money. Yeah, money, money, money. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, how much do you need? And he said, um, uh, 82,000. Uh, and I was like, 82,000 euros? 82,000 pigs? Like, 82,000 what? <laughs> and he's like, no, no, uh, 82,000 uh, dollars. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, it's okay with you. It's okay with me. And I, Gavin, I had $86,000 in my savings account. I literally had only at that time in my life a checking account and a savings account. My checking account had like a thousand dollars. My savings account had eighty six thousand, and I was like, "If I wire you the money right now, you'll sign this." And he goes, "Yeah, yeah, it's okay." And so I did, and he did, and that is. Wow! Wow! Fuck! You really? Wow! That is. I mean, (laughs) wow. I mean that that sums you up all in. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And the cool. So now, yeah, go. Yeah. So sorry. Like, and then like I went like so I went all in on my like Allisonness, and then I went all in on the whiskey because immediately I said, "Listen, take those four-year-old barrels, and I want you to start moving them into those wet exo cognac barrels that you got sitting there." And he really gave me some pushback. He thought that would be crazy. No one's doing this. Like, there's no whiskey that's ever done that. And I was like, yeah, I know. (laughs) This is called innovation. Let's give it a go, right? We're making a whiskey in the cognac region of France. We're using a cognac yeast. We're using a cognac still. We have the water that you use to proof down your cognacs. Why wouldn't we put it in a cognac barrel? And what was cool is like those fruit notes from the distillate got a little bit quiet and muted in just that new French oak. So we moved those four-year-old whiskey barrels into cognac barrel. I let them rest for another four years old, four years, bringing them up to eight years. So in 2011, I started pulling my permits together in the U.S. and like started working on naming and branding and packaging and all that kind of stuff. And then um, in the summer of 2012, I was like, I think the whiskey's ready. And it had like those first barrels had just spent four years in new French oak and then another four years in wet exo cognac. And we had this like really, I mean, you remember, you actually got to taste some of those first barrels. They were like, yeah, a gene fest, right? (laughs) 
like bongs and like and I and I bottled all the barrels individually. So they were all single barrel, like double barrel matured, but single barrel releases. And so you would like people started blogging. Like I remember Josh Feldman, the Cooper Todd, he would be like, barrel 262 is really my favorite. And like another blogger would be like, 259 is mine. I'm like, here's why. And and what was really special is when I would see one particular barrel do really well somewhere, I would pull it. Like I would literally fly to wherever that was being sold because I didn't have access to all like to like I didn't get like a like a case of each barrel. Yeah, yeah. So I would go there or I like ask my importer, just pull a case, send it to me, charge it back to me. And then I would store the case. I've still got a storage locker with some of these cases. And I would pull a bottle and send it back to France and say to Stefan, my distiller, like, this is our new target. Like, this is the flavor profile we're going for. And with the whole goal of eventually getting enough whiskey that we could start batching so we could, like, let the single cast go and just start batching and get like a little bit more unified of a profile, um, which we were able to do four years in. So yeah, so 2012 to 2016, it was all single barrel releases. And then um, I started batching for the US in 2017, which was really fun. So you were, ba- I mean, Jesus, I didn't realize, honestly, looking a lot, I didn't realize, I mean, you really had a lot of back end before you even had a business. Like you were laying product, you were sitting it, you were, the single barrels were kind of giving you a, a proof to get into your core item that would eventually come. But like, I mean, you were operating almost like a laboratory, you know, like a chemist over there, you know, playing and having fun yeah, to get to that final product, which is all that passion. I mean, you know, you've, you're creating this. So 2017, you now have a core item. And how old was that one? I forget the first one. It, they were the pretty consistently at this point. A Brenna State cask is between six and eight years. Yeah. So, and that is like for me, it's you don't get too much oak influence, but you get enough, so you get to keep those ester profiles from the distillate. And then we pretty much do like it'll like the whiskey doesn't do. Goodness, the way we were doing it in the in the beginning, right? Because I got to take ownership of his existing stock, I, you know, the whiskey would like spend time in one barrel and then I'd take it out and I'd put it into another one. Now, and like from the moment I intercepted this project, I was like, just lay down whiskey exclusively in New French Oak and some whiskey exclusively in Exo Cognac. And then when we started emptying some of those barrels, Mary. let's put new like batches exclusively in that. So now we have like a, like a spice cabinet, right? So to make lens, it's like, okay, well, it could be, you know, six barrels of that and two barrels of that and two barrels of that, like, other thing over there because that... I mean, you were, you were doing, you were doing in American whiskey terms, almost like a sour mash. <laughs> you were like, oh, hey, I, I got it. two different things going. You know, I got these two things going. And if you do the four of these and six of these, you get voila, you know, and, and playing over there, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Yes, I never. I so, never... so Al, what was what was your first big win? So now you've got it's 2017, and now you're there. Like, give me a, a crowning moment that is like super big in your brain. You're like, I've arrived because you escalated pretty quickly. Yeah, 2012 to 2017 was like those were some big years. I was really amazed by our whiskey community. 
I assumed and I, I really did. I would I would have advised, you know, me being me now, looking back, I would have been like, girl, maybe change your tone. But it, I think it actually really worked. You know, I would set up at those whiskey live shows and be like, oh, like, do, do you like whiskey? And people would be like, yeah, we're here. And I'd be like, cool. Like, what do you drink? And if they said like... <laughs> or Lagavulin, and I would be like, oh, you're going to hate this. Like, I, you know what? I won't even pour this for you. And people are like, what are you talking about? I want to try your whiskey. And I was like, oh, I don't think you're going to like it. <laughs> and like, for the most part, my first year, I would meet whiskey people and I'd be like, oh, I don't, I don't think you're going to like this at all. I don't, I don't really think you're going to like it. And it was so funny because it was the whiskey people who like so supported me, totally embraced people. And I mean, Here's here's where I knew I I thought I like had something that was gonna work. Two moments. One, the second time I did a big whiskey show, and I was always like often in those early days, 2011, 2012, 2013, I was usually the only woman behind a table who wasn't hired. The paid help. Yeah. Who wasn't the paid help. Right. And um and so understandably people would look at me and assume that I was there just for that night as a gig and like maybe didn't have all of the answers because who would educate someone just for one gig and um and then when people were like oh that's weird you make this this is who are you you know <laughs> and um you're different they would like start telling me that anyhow so so the second so the second time I had all these guys around me because at that point you remember there there weren't a lot of women who also attended these shows no uh, that was no. just the graphic, right? There was just, that was like me, my one little six foot table. Well, also, also, I want to, I want to paint, I want to paint another picture at these shows in that period. Kind of is, if there was, I mean, I, I forget what show you and I were at, but you were there and I was there, and you know, uh, Buffalo Trace would bring, you know, the Van Winkle and Julian or Spencer would be there. So like the doors would open and yeah. everybody would rush there, and every outfit would be like looking around, like what the fuck about us? Like, hey, we're here too. But everyone would go stand in the line with the security guard to try a, a bottle of Pappy. And you'd be like, at, at every other table, like, are they going to like eventually come to our table? It was, we would be empty and they would have, yeah, it was Whiskey Fest. It was one of those shows. I think, I think you were there. And I think it was the San Fran one, the Marriott. It was just like, it was insane. You're like, hey, what? Like, it's like, so there's just just to paint a picture for the audience, like not only is Allison a female at these shows, but like the people that are coming, like and in America, they not they're not like going outside the box. Yeah, they're not coming for me. Julian, to his no. beautiful like 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 a story about like how the whiskey community embraces everyone. Like Julian left his table with that long line and came over to me. And said, hey, Allison, how's it going? How's the whiskey? Like, what markets are you in? Do you have any distributor questions? He took a photo with me, him holding Bren, right? And I was like, that's Julian Van Winkle in 2013. Like, that's really dope, right? (laughs) That is. And at one of those shows... This like, you know, like you said, right? Like the, the whole flood would go to, to Van Winkle and then eventually they would come find you. People for years, I would, I was like a circus ringer. I was like the step right up, come try something new. Like no one wanted to come to my table. I pulled every person who tried Bren in and 
eventually those people would go out and then I would get other people coming saying, oh, someone was telling me at the compass box table if I liked hedonism to come try Bren next or if I liked Balvany Caribbean cast to come try you next. And so I had this one moment where my table was so full. Like I was six across, four rows deep. I mean, glasses are getting shoved in my face. And this huge man in a kilt just in his big voice leans over and he goes, you Allison? <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> and he goes, I call this my uh, my therapy whiskey or something. It was something. No, no, my like my my uh, my divorce whiskey or something, something like that. And I and it was like it was this very weird thing that he called it. And like everyone just kind of froze, including me. And I was like, God, I have no idea if this is going to go so terribly or so well. Right. And then he just like stopped and he goes, it's the only bottle I can bring home that my wife doesn't yell at me for bringing into this house. And everyone just erupted in laughter because all the men knew it, right? They knew what it felt like to bring yeah. another bottle of whiskey home that the wife is like, are you freaking kidding me with this stuff? <laughs> and I swear myself, my sales climbed after that because of that comment. <laughs> I, and it was 100% true. I mean, because honestly, it was like, I, I remember when I first started buying and my wife would be like, are you fucking nuts? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's ridiculous. Like, this doesn't even taste good. It's too this, it's too that. And like, you you cracked that whole category. You made, you know, you with it. I look at it, and I know this is a big statement, and, and, and is obviously, but like, you were the Cosmo of whiskey for the women who were like, I don't know what, whiskey's gnarly. You were just that great, like, oh shit, First of all, it's you, so that you were a great personality for Bren. So it was kind of, and it was legit. You weren't the hired help at the show. It was you and your passion and your hand movements and your excitement about the whiskey that was very intoxicating. You're like, oh shit, this is fucking fun. You know, it doesn't have to be all like, mm, we're drinking whiskey. Are you guys smoking cigars later? Mm. Hey, you know, like, mm. are you like, no, you can, it can be, you know, and, and I saw that turn. I remember when you presented in Brooklyn and then obviously every time after when I was with you, it's like it was that intoxication and then the whiskey stood up to it. It wasn't like you were selling a fucking mocktail in the world of whiskey. You're like, this is legit. This is me. This is what I did. And I think that's what, I mean, obviously, you know, Bren went on to do Bren and you did that. Thank you. I mean, it's, I'm so grateful. You know? Thank you really I mean, it's it's well it's, it, it's like for me watching as as like you know she got started guys girls before there was instagram and, and for me in an instagram experience to kind of watch it and how everything became social media but like now now me learning more of the story you were already like you were already running you know i i met you when you turned into a sprinter but you were already running <laughs> gavin i've been running since i was five <laughs> like, so 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 now you've got the core item and and now now it's go time right it's like yeah. hey i got something that i can put on every truck it's a consistent product and now let's let's go do it yeah because i didn't like i would go to the whiskey bars but i wouldn't go to mixologist until it was consistent because i had i didn't want to disrespect them right like if someone 
oh my god there were there were some mixologists who put us on the cocktail menu and i was like i would like sit down with them and look at them and be like hey like i can only guarantee so many cases of this barrel that i don't know how fine-tuned your palate is but if you get a different barrel you might be mad and i don't want you to be mad so do you want to wait you know <laughs> and all of them would be like yeah no, consumers aren't going to know. We'll know. Thanks for the heads up. But like consumers aren't going to know. Right. Um, not that the consumers are yeah. dumb. It's just like if you get a cocktail to bar, you're probably talking. No, no. It's... And you're not yeah. paying attention. So anyhow. So, so, yeah. So we launched in 2012 in New York. Every distributor turned me down. This was still like single barrel stuff. So I started biking Bren. That's how we actually started. So I borrowed $95 from my ex-husband and to get a city bike membership and started biking Bren to make all of my deliveries around Manhattan. And I would take the subway and like go drop it off at the one store we had in Brooklyn. And then I got a phone call. No, I got an email from a guy who said, um, I was at the Indie Spirits show in Chicago and we, um, you were the talk of the town. Bren was the talk of the town. Everyone's like, it was like amazing. Da, 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 da. And we just, you know, we're an importer in the U.S. We want to meet with you. And I was like so excited. And then I was also like, man, that's 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 going to be a really good email for whoever that was intended. Right. And I sent him an email and I was like, hey, like, <laughs> really, like, love your enthusiasm. Don't know how you got my name. I'm really sorry. I wasn't at that show. So I'm sure this was meant for someone else. Like, so excited for them. That's really cool. I, I know you guys are a great company. So like, how fun that like another entrepreneur gets to like work with you. And he was like, Allison, I know you weren't at the show. I was. Everyone was talking about you. That's why I emailed you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ooh. <laughs> oh. And he was like, I want to come to New York and like take you out to lunch and like talk about what we could possibly do together. And I was like, oh, oh, cool. Like, that sounds great. And <laughs> a 28 year old like jazz hands me. And I was like, yeah, man, let, let's do lunch. Let's have a business meeting. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he, like, he was so wonderful. His name is Gary. He was just like one of the best. And um, Gary Kymack at, at um, Martinetti in Boston. And he ran an import company and they were importing Gordon and McPhail. So mm -hmm. I was like, if you are importing a 150-year-old, the oldest private label scotch, the oldest private labeler of whiskey in the world, it's a 150-year-old company, and it is one of the most complex companies to explain. And if you're selling Gordon McPhail, Gordon and McPhail, you can, you know, I, I said to them, why do you want to sell Bren? And they said to me, because it, it'll be easy. And no one else had been able to say, hey, a French single malt made by an ex-ballerina in New York, it, like the taste like blueberry muffin tops and creme brulee and bananas foster is going to be easy. No one said that was going to be easy. But these guys said it was going to be easy. And together, that's where Bren exploded. Like we went from three states in the U.S. to 35 states in a matter of like two, three years. The team he had with Chris Riesbeck and a bunch of those guys, Dan Paid, like they were just so amazing we hit the ground we were i was traveling was visiting with them every single week um in during those early years and then i got a call from diageo and a guy like messaged me on linkedin and he was like an ex-ceo of bacardi and i had networked with the remy 
people and who they always said, oh, if you ever want to sell, like we're a French company, we should talk. But but I know you're like, you seem to be having a good time with your business. I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, and then I, I just, Thanks. yeah, exactly. Um, and I, but I always said to them, I was like, like, let me figure out what this business is that I could even sell before I sell. So I, I, um, when, when I was five, when Ren was five on the market, five years old on the market, I, after a year of negotiating and I, I mean, I could write a book just about that time. I had the best time, the worst times. I learned so many lessons in life um, at some of those big tables and like all the drama that happened in between. And then I signed with that guy who was the ex-Bacardi guy who eventually started a company called Samson and Surrey. And Samson and Surrey never was in business to promote the name Samson and Surrey. Their idea was, can we pull together six brands from across the craft spirits space and like centralize, um, you know, HR and finances and marketing and like together pool resources and hire a really amazing sales team. And then maybe one day either IPO or sell that as a group. And that was just really exciting, right? Like I had kind of done the solopreneur thing um, for five years. I was really, I mean, running Bren as one person was was very physic like physically hard on my body um, and on my stress. Mm -hmm. So joining with Samson Surrey was awesome. And I got to learn like what handing the reins over could feel like, oh, okay, like here's all my finances, like here's all the marketing stuff and da da da. And like here's the areas of the business that I really want to stay intimate with. And like here's other things that I'm totally happy if someone else runs. And then I I ran with them for another five years. And then last year, Heaven Hill bought the whole Samson and Surrey group, which was Bren, Widow Jane, Few Spirits, Blue Coat Gin, Mezcal Vago, and Tequila Ocho. So it was a really, really wild journey and very, very shocking. I think. Some when are we doing? When are we doing the uh, the Netflix or Showtime uh, miniseries? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I want to see from from biking biking Bren to the trips in cognac to the phone and and the SIM card to the joy of whiskey and 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 I mean. What a journey. What a fucking fun. Yeah. It's I mean, really. What fun. Yeah. It's been fun. So now, so now, what's going on? You've been traveling an absolute storm. I got Here you at. I've not I've not said this publicly, so I'll say it. I'll say it here first. This is so weird. Um, but I stepped back from Bren full time August 31st, 2022. And my second, my current husband, who's a love, he says to me, well, what do you need? Like, what do you need on that day? I said, I need to fly. It's going to feel like a very abrupt and unsettling amount of freedom to not be tethered to my brand, my kid, my baby that I've like nursed for 15 years. I need to immediately be flying. So I literally had a flight out that night went to France, my homeland, you know, <laughs> and um, mm -hmm. stayed in Europe for five weeks. I visited friends. I worked Whiskey Live Paris with Bren. I was like, mm -hmm. and I just couldn't bring myself to tell people that I had left the full-time part of my job. And then I got back and it was these like three months of kind of like sadness, like just kind of like, what am I doing? <laughs> am I without this brand? 
So October, November, December were just like very weird. And then um, and then I really like found my joy again. In January, I've just had the most incredible consulting projects, um, some in many in whiskey, which I love. And some have been like opening new doors. So I've done like a project with the Department of Education for the state of New York. I did something with a medical device company. I did something with a cybersecurity company and some other like consumer packaged good brands, which has been just really fun and kind of flexing some new muscles, but also being able to pull in uh, many of the things that I've just learned from a lot of the different aspects of the project. My favorite thing in the world is when people invite me to do public speaking. It's like, I don't know, it feels like it's connecting me back to my like performance days and my performance self. So I just, I'm so grateful for those opportunities. Um, and then in the meantime, I got really clear. I wrote down my bucket list in life and then I've just been um, checking them off. <laughs> So like I oh swear. my god, I'm so so excited for you. I mean, you did it. You fucking did it. that chapter. You did a good chapter. You did a good chapter. You did a good fucking chapter. And now you're gonna keep. You know, I I don't know. It's just it's so cool because I've known you a whopping five years, and I kind of feel like I saw a lot of it. And I and like you did it. You fucking did it. And you did it with from the heart. I mean, you know, you know, in my world of in my real world of grocery, you know, what you were saying about the circus, we call us carnies. You go to a trade show and you're like, hey, go see what I got. Hey, it's really good. But you sell from the heart because that means you're not really selling. You know, like when you talk about something that you're truly passionate about, it's just what you are. You're not selling shit. It's just real. And I think that's what you did with brand. And that's what you'll continue to do with all your other endeavors. And I love the public speaking side because you do evolve, evoke um, an emotional connection when you talk to people. You just do. You, you have, you know, certain people have that certain natural gift of the gab where it's real, you know, and it's like it's it's always on. Some people say like, oh, Gab, you're so good because you're a sales guy. I'm like, I'm not a sales guy. It might, it might be happen how I make my money. But it's not what I like. That's not me. Like, that's just who I am. I'm passionate about what I'm, whatever I'm talking about. doesn't have to be whiskey. doesn't have to be grocery. Literally. Like, it's just who you, and, and you're, you're the same. You know, I think that's why you and I have always just gelled out so well, because it's like, let's just hang out and have fucking fun. Oh, shit, whiskey. I mean, remember that? <laughs> remember that? The other, Eric's getting some free shout outs here all the time at the <laughs> Vegas show. The big you know, which is like which became a shit which became a shit show later because of the amount of alcohol. <laughs> yeah. And and a gentleman who we won't be named like got you know pretty out of it. Um but yeah, I mean just cool experiences. Well, I'm proud of you. Not that you need my pride, but it's been cool watching. I'm and uh, I can't thank watching. you enough for coming on. Uh, you know, I just you know, you nailed it. Keep doing it. I mean, I you know, I I, I do want to, you know, I'm I'm looking, I turned, you know, I'm, I'm old as a dinosaur, but I turned 50 this year, and Benedict Hardy from Hardy Cognac's a good friend. And I said, fuck, for my 50th, I'm going to rally up some of the troops from South Africa, bring them to Cognac, and can we just have a crazy experience? She's like, 100% you can't. So, <laughs> I'd like, but maybe when I do go there, I'm going to go visit your guy over there. I, I just, I'd like, it's just such a beautiful lifestyle over there. Oh, my God. Tell like, me. Like, if I could pick it up me. and go. I can drop in. I will. 
I will. I'm, I'll see her in Vegas. I'll see her in Vegas in two weeks for Universal Whiskey. And uh, I'm, I'm going to look at some calendar dates. And just, you know, it's just easy for me to get the homies from down south to fly up there rather than bring them over to America. I love it. I love your passion. I love your joy and your zeal. Like when you, it's it's funny when you talked about sales people, right? It's like, well, we're not like, like salesmen get a bad rap because of like the traditional like used car salesman and like a big goofy blazer and like, you know, trying to like get one over on you. But like you said, when you're just, when you're real and you love people and you love like to me, I'm like good sales is really just good problem solving. Like, what are you looking for? And let me see yeah. if I can find it. And you also like you're you're so engaging and dynamic. I mean, clearly, like you know, the performer in me saw the performer in you. And <laughs> when we first met, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, no, and it's, and it's the authenticity. I think that's what's like that's what really separates the game. You know, like especially now, it's like you see these marketing companies with whiskey that are using buzzwords. You see the social media collapse of of Instagram with all these like faux fluencers, you know, like shit like that. And I'm like, man, like just like side effects. I've always said, to people, like do something you're passionate about. Don't think about what the potential is. And the side effects are normally way more than you ever expected could ever happen, just by being yourself. Totally agree. Yeah. And. And as my um, friends in Cognac, when she was 13, their daughter said to me, Allison, being you is your superpower. You're the only one who can be you. And that's everyone's superpower. Being, being yourself is your superpower. Well, I appreciate you and thank you for taking the time today. I really, I really, a lot, lot of love and respect and, and admiration for everything you've done. You did it. Take a bow. For Valerie Tina and you.